we don't create cultures for male athletes to feel comfortable to speak up about how they're doing, sometimes that can lead to some of this deviant behavior that we're talking about. Well, hi, everyone, and welcome to another stellar episode of 80% Mental. I'm Dr. Pete Oldishaga, and this is a podcast all about the psychology of sport performance. Now, you don't need to follow sport closely to know that athletes and, and coaches as well often find themselves in the press for the wrong reasons. You might, for example, have seen the story of the German equestrian coach who punched a horse in the face in Tokyo. Uh, you might have seen Kazakhstan's Nurislam Sanayev biting his opponent's arm in the wrestling. Uh, perhaps you remember Luis Suarez, who was also partial to a little nibble every now and then. Or maybe you remember some of the more serious news stories involving athletes, uh, Adam Johnson, for example, uh, Brock Turner. Uh, and let's go ahead and throw John Gruden in there for good measure as well after this week. But from diving to flopping to doping all the way to domestic violence and serious sexual assault, there's hardly a day goes by without a story somewhere of an athlete getting themselves into trouble. As always... Uh, we're going to start this episode of 80% Mental with a question and with the help of some expert guests, we'll have a go at answering that question. So our question for this episode is, do we deserve better from our sporting heroes? And to help us with that question, I'm joined by two brilliant minds, but more than that, the two brilliant people, Dr. Megan Bird and Dr. Mitch Abrams. Uh, Megan Bird is an assistant professor of sport and exercise psychology at Georgia Southern University. She's a certified mental performance consultant and is also the co-director of mental performance for South Georgia Tormentor FC. Megan, welcome to the podcast. How are you? I'm doing great, Pete. Thanks for having me. Um, I saw you had a presentation at the recent ASP conference. Uh, ASP is the Association sure for Applied Sports Psychology for anyone who, who doesn't know. Uh, what, was, what was that about? It's about ethics and how to be ethical. So that should fit right in with what we're talking about today. Yeah, we were talking about, um, given the pandemic, how do we continue service provision online um, for ourselves and also our graduate students? Okay, awesome. Um, and if, you, uh, if you're if you listening and you haven't checked out the ASP website, uh, we'll put a link to it because there's a bunch of free resources on there for athletes and coaches, I think, as well. So uh, go and check that out. Uh Alongside Megan, I'm really pleased to welcome Dr. Mitch Abrams, a sport, clinical, and forensic psychologist. Uh, Mitch is an expert in anger, violence, and trauma, specifically as it presents in the sports world. Besides writing Anger Management and Sport in 2010, he's also the chief psychologist in the prison system in New Jersey, where he's worked for the past 21 years. Uh, Mitch, that's a, a pretty impressive resume, a pretty broad set of skills you've got there. Uh, thank you. Certainly appreciate the opportunity to join you. Uh, people often ask me, uh, what is the commonality <laughs> between working with inmates and working with athletes? Um, and it's also a, a very anticlimactic question because <laughs> they're both people. And um, as in any population, we have some assholes. <laughs> we have some assholes in the sports world. We have some assholes in the uh, correctional population, but, but by and large, uh, the similarities are that 
uh, many people that wind up incarcerated have difficulty modulating their emotions, and that happens in sports sometimes as well. Um, so uh, very often I'm looking at two sides of the same coin, even if I'm dealing with different popula uh, populations with a little bit more commonality than people realize. Well, I'm looking forward to drawing on, on both of your expertise uh, today to, to answer our question, should we expect more from our athletes and coaches? Should we uh, uh, expect more from their, their behavior? Um, so like I said, we're, we're constantly hearing about athlete bad behavior. Uh, and I suppose we should probably start off by defining what we're talking about. Um, I gave a few examples of specific athletes earlier on, but it's a pretty, bro uh, a pretty broad range uh, of, of what we might call deviant behavior. Um, I wonder if, if either of you have any examples or, um, yeah, examples from your own experience of some of those uh, behaviors that we might consider to be deviant in sport and why maybe we would, we would look at them that way. Well, because I think it's fun to pick on English every now and then, um, <laughs> deviance is a statistical anomaly. When we talk about something that's deviant, it's, it's uncommon. And somehow we have taken deviance to mean um, pathological or evil. And um, I don't think that's fair. Um, when we're talking about deviant behavior, yeah, we tend to be talking about bad behavior um, and, or immoral behavior or illegal behavior. But as you were talking, Peter, what came to mind for me was... Um, uh, High-performing athletes are deviant on on the get-go because they're already statistical anomalies compared to the average person, right? So mm. what we're really talking about where they're statistically deviant in a, a negative direction. And I think that one of the problems that we might have is that we presume that athletes, because they're um, uh, physically gifted, that means that they're necessarily morally gifted as well. And I don't think those are mutually inclusive. So um, we probably also want to clarify, and, and certainly I, I'd welcome you and, and Megan's thoughts on this. Uh, we should be mindful that deviance by definition is just statistically different. Um, and, and then we should probably clarify a little bit further um, to try to figure out, and, and I think you've, you're alluding to this, Pete, is are we talking about things that are immoral? And if that's the case, what is the code that we follow? Is there one? <laughs> and, uh, and, and what about when things are illegal? Because there are things that are legal that are immoral, and there are things that are moral that are illegal. So mm -hmm. I think it, I, I, might, I might be getting off in more of a philosophical debate than a sports psychology debate, but I think it's important to, to not... Um, uh, to, I think it's important to pay attention, at, at least for a moment, because the most violent people in the world are not violent 100% of their lives. Probably about 5% of their active waking lives are they doing things that are violent. So we're talking about bad behavior, and I think in the extreme and in the, um, with a certain amount of frequency, we, we can then conclude perhaps bad character as well. And as John Wooden once said, uh, sports build character, but not necessarily good, good character. Mm -hmm. 
really interesting stuff there, Mitch. Megan, I wonder if you have any thoughts on, on what Mitch has just said there. Yeah, I do. I'm glad that you brought up the idea of illegal versus immoral because another piece of this are governing bodies. And so different regulations or rules or what governing bodies choose to enforce or not enforce um, in terms of what we might label as deviant behavior as well. So thinking about the Brock Turner situation, um, who was a student athlete, the NCAA, which is the governing body for college sports in the States, doesn't have jurisdiction over punishing him for sexual assault. Legally, that's a different aspect, of course. Um, so I think that adds another component to what this looks like and how the conversation tends to go. So, so the irony then would be um, uh, before the NIL laws were changed, if you took money for selling New Jersey, the NCAA could afford enforce that. But if you rape someone, that's cool, no problem. <laughs> that seems to be the message that is sometimes sent. Yes. <laughs> well, it, it's really interesting because when we talk about deviant behavior, when we use that word, Mitch, you're absolutely right. We're talking about something that's statistically different or different from the norm. And, you know, in this context, we're talking about behavior that's different from social norms and legal norms or perceived social and, le and legal norms anyway, which kind of begs the question you know, do social and legal norms actually apply in sports contexts or are sports a thing in and of themselves? And, you know, I think certainly some of the more social norms might come into question. Uh, and I think we, we, we'll touch a little bit more on that later on in the conversation. I'm, I'm hoping that we do anyway. Um, but I, I guess what I want to talk about is, is, is this idea that we have this perception that athletes get into trouble a lot because it's in the news a lot. Uh, and maybe we should separate out some of the more mundane stuff from some of the more criminal stuff, you know, that goes against those legal norms. But is is bad behavior in athlete populations, is it a, as big a thing as we think it is? Or do some of these things just make a good headline? And that's why we see them so much. I don't think so. Um, again, not to get into the picky details of, of, uh, of language, but how do we define an athlete? Do you have to be a professional athlete to be considered an athlete? The 85-year-old marathon runner who's in better shape than I would ever be is certainly an athlete. Not exactly the prototypical uh, stalker, predator, sexual assaulter about to happen. And so if we consider how many people are involved in sports, um, it becomes quickly ridiculous to realize that there is nothing about being involved in sports or playing with a ball that makes you more likely to be violent. However... <clears throat> If we carve it then into different subsets and say, all right, and they've tried to do this. They said, oh, well, athletes are more, oh, no, 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 we're just talking about college athletes. Well, oh, male college athletes, male college athletes that drink on Thursdays, you know, you, 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 and play collision sports. So you carve it down, you carve it down, you carve it down. And, it, I, and I think when you hear that, it is uh, the product of folks that have an agenda that will uh, propagate it regardless of whether or not the data supports it. Now, that's not to say that I, I, I do believe that there are things that are inside the male athlete culture that can contribute to a potential for violence, but it's certainly not causative. Um, it's correlative and, and it's built on several factors. Uh, and I think that um, if we go down that rabbit hole, uh, that athletes are more violent than non-athletes, uh, then we're going to also ignore all the amazing things that, that you get out of athletics. 
politics. Um, so I, I think it's bunk and really not supported. Sure. I mean, you know, you mentioned the culture around male sport in particular there. What about some of the stuff that's maybe not violence related? Um, you know, we're talking about a culture where we have a lot of young men getting paid a lot of money. Um, I don't know, Megan, do you have any thoughts on this? On Do we, do we think that it's a, it's, a, it's an issue or do we think that it's, it's just kind of hyped out of all proportion because they're an easy target? I think the answer is both. Uh, Mitch taught me 11 years ago that um, male athletes aren't committing crimes at a higher rate than the general population who's the same age as them. And so I think that both it can be an issue because these are still people who, if they are experiencing deviant behavior, whether they're perpetrating it or receiving it, um, who deserve to get out of that. And then also I think that it can be blown out of proportion because it does make a good headline. Um, if you have a regular person who commits a crime, it might be in your newspaper, but if someone else who makes a lot of money makes the same crime, we're all going to know about it. And so thinking about, I think the question always comes back to you, should we know these things about athletes and should we hold them to a higher standard, which I think is you know the basis of the conversation. So I think it's both. I think that it both is an issue and it's also blown out of proportion. So we'll we'll come back to this again later on, but just seeing as you brought it up there, you know, do, do you think that we should hold them to a high, higher standard um, because they are so visible? You know, social media plays a huge role here. We get to see this stuff broadcast into the palms of our hands all the time, you know, Twitter feeds and Facebook feeds. Um, you know, do we think that that, social media plays a role here? And, and, and do you think that athletes should be held accountable because they are so visible? I think to your point about holding someone to a standard that different athletes are held to different standards. So even if we think about the three of us who are no longer competitive athletes, the standards that the three of us would have been held to would have been very different. And I think that that is still true today when we look at female athletes, when we look at athletes of color, um, and then we look at even the type of sport. And so I think to even answer the question, it comes back to what is the standard? Um, and then your point about societal norms too, norms for whom? Um, because I think those those are different answers. You know, it's fascinating because I think where you're going with this, Megan, which is right on point, is that we tend to think of athletes as a homogeneous culture. And it's just not true. I mean, every sport has its own culture. Every team has its own culture. Every country and state. And you can carve it up a million different ways. Um, and so overgeneralization is, is usually the best way to make a, a blanket statement that's vague enough to, it's like a horoscope, right? <laughs> Everyone goes, oh, that's me. And then you read it and you go, that's not me. What are we talking about? <laughs> so so um, I think it's, it's, it's an important delineation and way to think about things. Um, but I also, not to be too rambunctious about it, but in response to your question, Pete, there's a little bit of a response... Uh, who cares? Meaning that, um, why do we even care about this? Are we, are we worried about society being corrupted by the fact that we see rich people engaging in bad behavior? Well, that's not a new phenomenon. I mean, you know, people in entertainment have been doing that for years. That's not new. Um, yes, there's certainly the issue of role models um, and, and the debate that Charles Barkley had about I shouldn't be a role model, which he caught a lot of press about, and he was primarily right. <clears throat> that you should be following more uh, people that are similar to you, your parents, your teachers, maybe your coaches. Um, 
But one can even argue that maybe we're looking at it the wrong side because people, I think, are very quick to try to identify things dichotomously, right? So they go, athletes, bunch of bad guys and they're perpetrators and bad. And then the other side of it is, poor athletes are always picked on, man. They get arrested and it's on the news right away. And so for me, when it's a different talk, if I'm talking to colleagues or parents or young athletes, then when I'm talking to athletes and when I'm talking to athletes, I'm talking about high school, college, pro athletes. And my message is kind of, listen, man, no one gives a shit. Really, people don't care that you are this or that. There are going to be some people that are going to put you on a pedestal regardless of what you do. Then there are going to be some people that are going to be more than happy to see you fall from grace because there are a few things funnier than people falling from grace. America's Funniest Home Videos is still one of the widest spread TV shows <laughs> because everyone likes to watch people fall down. And I would argue that we should be educating athletes that they need to be a little bit more selfish and mindful. That if you want to take advantage of the, the opportunities that your God-given talent or your hard work or the combination of the two have gotten you, then you need to be better behaved because if you act up or you do something outside the lines, it's going to be blasted on Sports Center before anyone even corroborates it. So I, I think athletes um, should take heed and be even better behaved because they do get lots of opportunities that the average person doesn't get. A couple of things from from what both of you said there that I want to, I want to pick up on. Um, the first one is going back to something that you said, Megan, about how athletes are held to uh, perhaps different standards um, based on things like race and based on things like gender. Uh, I wonder if you could just elaborate on that. Do you have any kind of examples of the sorts of thing you mean? I, I know I have a few ideas in my head, but what, what kind of things do you, do you mean by that? Yeah, absolutely. I think if we look at, um, so if we, if we start with just a gender breakdown between people who identify as female and people who identify as male and look at what's appropriate in some contexts that might not be appropriate in other. Um, so if we think about the deviant behavior of people um, cheating on their spouses. When men tend to do that, it's sometimes seen as like, well, of course they do. They always have people chasing after them. Those kinds of comments are made. Um, when women do, it's seen as it's an attack on their character. So for men, it's an opportunity. For women, it's it's not always seen like that. Um, and then also just thinking about um, how people celebrate wins. Um, so when the Buccaneers won the Super Bowl, uh, Tom Brady and Rob Gronkowski were throwing the Lombardi trophy across a boat and water. Um, and just imagining if a female athlete would have done the same thing with the trophy, how they would have been would have been seen. Um, and then also thinking about how the press writes about people. Um, so I'm thinking of uh, Venus and Serena, and when they get heated in a tennis match, they're usually labeled as being aggressive. Or they're labeled as being um, unruly black women. Whereas if you have a male tennis player who acts in a more egregious way, it's seen as he's a competitor. And so I think even getting back to how we label them in the media, your comment about social media absolutely plays a role too. Yeah, and essentially, uh, uh, you know, you, there are hundreds and hundreds of examples of those racialized and gendered ways that we respond to athletes. So it kind of points to the idea that when we when we think about deviant behavior, actually, that's a very different thing depending on who we're talking about and the circumstances that we're, we're talking about them in. Uh, again, picking up on this social media aspect of it, 
I think what's really interesting, and I think that that we've had this conversation before, Megan, is that um, social media is a bit of a double-edged sword in that it puts athletes out there into the media in ways that they might not necessarily like, but it also gives them a voice. It also gives them the opportunity to perhaps control the narrative. Um, you know, I'm thinking particularly, you, I, th- I think you've mentioned the, the Malice at the Palace documentary before, which I've, I've now seen. It's uh, so good. And the, yeah, it is. And, and the way that, you know, athletes are able to tell their own stories about some of the things that are said about them in the press. Now, again, I wonder, uh, Mitch if, or Megan, either of you have any, any thoughts on, on that and the way that social media can be uh, used in that way? Well, it's a different level of training. I mean, look, um, at a very baseline uh, perspective of professional athletes, and, and it, it, it's always been true of college athletes as well, uh, but, but so supposedly they were amateurs, right? So they weren't really showered with things. Now they can make money. But the truth is, is that you, you gave me a million dollars when I was 20 years old. If you think I was going to make all the right decisions, any, any guy, <laughs> any 20-year-old person who says that, is lying, right? So part of the issue is um, the responsibility that comes with fame and fortune and and the mistakes that can be made. And so if there is a risk for people that are young and immature, you know, (laughs) not completely developed brains to make mistakes, then social media makes it impossible to hide it. And so just as I believe that it's important that athletes surround themselves with pro-social models and people that will help check them and keep them in line, I think it's also important that they get good social media training. That um, yes, on the one hand, uh, you can use it as a, a, you have an instant microphone to the world. And, and you can control the narrative. And I've seen it both ways. I've seen athletes use it from damage control point of view and said, listen, that's not what I meant, <laughs> right? Let me let me try to set the record straight because, you know, you stick a microphone in someone's face, of course, present company excluded, someone's bound to say something stupid at the wrong time and they'll take that out of context and it goes and flies and the athlete doesn't have the opportunity to fix it. Um, but there's also the opportunity to not just change the narrative, but magnify that narrative and talk about the things that they are important, they think feel are important, either charities or causes that are important to them and can instantly propagate it out. So to me, I think sometimes people demonize social media and I understand why, because it is a very dangerous tool, but I see it no different as any other. It's a tool. And just as a scalpel could be used to cut someone's face, it can also be used to uh, open someone's chest and save their lives. I think uh, social media can be used in the same way. Um, And and I also think that athletes are increasingly socially, not just socially um, aware. I think that's gone on for a long time, but they're more socially literate. They're better able to talk about things. And it's an opportunity that if done right, can be very powerful. I'm here with Dr. Mitch Abrams and Dr. Megan Bird, and we're talking about athlete behavior. Should we expect better from our sporting heroes? Um, We have this idea in our minds that sport is something that is inherently good. 
you know, that it teaches us about values and cooperation and teamwork. And, and Mitch, you mentioned the uh, the um, John Wooden quote earlier. Um, but I think the more that we look beneath the surface, the more we start to see some perhaps unsavory elements in sport. I think we've kind of almost bastardized Hughes and Coakley's sport ethic. Uh, and now we have a problem of what's called overconformity right, to some of these ideas about sacrifice and risk and refusing to accept limits and so on. And I wonder, you know, what do you think about this idea that we all, all of us, you know, psychs, uh, athletes, coaches, fans, media, have a role to play in creating the conditions for some of this, perhaps, what we might call bad behavior anyway. I wonder what you think about that idea. Well, sport is, you know, sport is as ubiquitous as religion is. You could drop a drone anywhere in the world, you know, civilized or not. You got people throwing around a ball and praying to some guy in the sky or something like that. Right. You know, it, it, when you have something that's that part, that that endemic to uh, the human experience, it's hard to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Um, but it's also, I think, a mistake to presume any venue is going to be all good or all bad. And uh, we all have a responsibility. I mean, I was just talking to an athlete last night. There was just no other way to describe it. His coach was an asshole. His coach had no business teaching young men how to be men. Right? Or and just this, this example was men. It'd be the same thing about women teaching girls how to become women. There's, there's really not a whole lot of education on how to be a good coach. Um, and, and by the way, that that's that shouldn't be the end of the story because you have to take a test to get a driver's license. There's no test to become a parent, <laughs> right? So there are parents that are failing as parents. There are coaches failing as coaches. But there's education out there. I remember I was talking to Kristen Deffenbach about this a few years ago, about how you know I, I, I was I was so, I was almost like kind of denying her existence. I was like, you should not be required, <laughs> right? You shouldn't, there shouldn't be such a need for coaching education, but it, it, it just, it bubbles over all the time. And so I think that from the very top, all the way down from the administrators and certainly youth sport has become a billion dollar industry. We always knew that college, collegiate and, and pro sports are, but everybody in there has a role in creating uh, the conditions. And I think because disproportionately the perpetrators of violence tend to be male, then we have a greater um, obligation to take a look at what exists inside the male athlete culture. Um, and I would argue that most of those things exist throughout the athlete culture, but there's added gravy or, I don't know, bad things or crap factors that go into it that mm -hmm. make the male athlete culture uh, a little bit more uh, dangerous. But I think we should all have a part in that. I want to pick up on that a little bit more, actually, Mitch, because, you know, some of these ideas around sacrifice and risk and pushing through boundaries, and, and it's this this idea of mental toughness, which I personally can't stand. But it's it plays into this kind of hyper-masculine view of what athletes should be and what sport should be. You know, how does that, you know, the very language that we use sometimes, how does that play into this uh, th this male culture that you're talking about here? Well, yeah, because uh, when you say, you know, uh, toughness, I think the reason why people's stomachs turn a little bit is because it sounds a lot like, be a man, right? And I got news for you. When, when Megan was talking, 
I still have not seen an athlete that I'd be more intimidated by than Serena Williams. I don't care, <laughs> male, female, what the sport is. <laughs> She'd take my lunch in a second, right? <laughs> so, so the idea that men have the market cornered on, on toughness or aggressiveness, or anything, that's just bullshit to begin with. Mm. Um, so I, I think um, there's this topic uh, that we talk about in sexual assault prevention, this, this uh, toxic masculinity. And if you want to see a great uh, YouTube TED Talk, Joe Ehrman, um, who's former Baltimore coach, um, recorded, and the whole thing is Be a Man. And he talks, he does a lot of work with, um, he's a pastor or counselor, by the way. And he talks about how we socialize men to believe that their value is going to be based off of the number of women they sleep with, the size of their bank account, <laughs> how fast they run, see how I did that, right? The, how fast they run the 40. And um, nobody is teaching boys about the value of relationships and developing a legacy, having a mark on things. Now, one could argue these are issues for female athletes as well, but I think that where there's a developmental hurdle or d discrepancy, and this is an overgeneralization, is that girls tend to have better social intelligence developed from the time that they're very young and boys are behind. And so what do boys do when they don't know? They stick out their chest and say, I know everything. I slept with 17 girls. You know, you're six years old. You don't even know what your penis is, right? So, <laughs> so, so you have this um, unwillingness uh, to own insecurity, to own I don't know. And I don't dislike the term mental toughness. I just disagree with how it's defined. I think toughness is um, knowing your weaknesses and keeping them well protected, you know, um, uh, maximizing your strengths in a way so that people don't see them, um, having the ability to uh, uh, have people want to work with you and build cohesion so that you can be successful as a unit. So um, uh, I think you're right. Some of it turns into a little bit of hyperbole. Some of it is certainly socialized. If we add into this, the whole concept of uh, emotion suppression that we see in sports and even more so for men, for boys, um, it sets the stage for people not improving their self-awareness. And I think that that's the critical element um, uh, to mental toughness. And very often this idea of toxic masculinity really comes from a pathetic sense of insecurity and fragility, not knowing what it means to be a man. So you, so, and it always takes, you know, then you'll have one girl chasing after the asshole athletes that reinforce that behavior, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of us having good role models, sitting down with our, our athletes, our boys and say, listen, no, this is what it means to be an athlete. This is what it means to become a man. This is what it, this is what the expectations are, and unfortunately, a lot of the people that are leading by example, um, uh, they have not been successful athletes. They have not been successful people. They have not been successful men, and these are teaching boys how to become men. So we need more men at the table, I think, talking about how to do this better. Sure, and and, and Megan, let's bring you uh, back in here as well. You know, Mitch talked there about the the way that mental toughness is defined and as psychologists were trying to define it in one way but the sports world almost is kind of railing against that and wants to to keep this like this sort of like hyper masculine toxic masculinity uh, type definition of what toughness should be you know do you have any kind of experience where you've seen that in in athletes that you work with how you might kind of 
counter some of those um, socialization processes? Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, I agree with all of the points that that Mitch made. And I think thinking about the difference between male sport culture and, and female sport culture and sport culture in general, there are some things that are going to be acceptable and one that aren't in the other. And I feel like at this point, I'm a broken record about that. But um, <laughs> I think it's all related because for what we consider to be a male tough athlete or a, a male athlete who's at the top of his game, talking about um, any sort of mental health concern, it's it's a big deal. Um, so Dak Prescott, who's the quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys, and I realize that most of my examples are, are U.S.-centric, and I apologize for that. Um, but he was talking about during the pandemic how he was really struggling with depression. And Skip Bayless, who is a commentator for, I think, Fox Sports, is that right? Um basically said that how can he ever gain trust in a locker room again? And so thinking about the support or lack of support for Dak Prescott versus Simone Biles, and and you're going to have fringe people on both sides who, regardless of who it is, is going to say, toughen up, like, what's wrong with you? You make so much money. How can you be depressed? Which is just ridiculous because they're humans um, with human emotions, go figure. And Um, thinking about just how those two people may have been perceived differently. And then we also add that they are both athletes of color. Um, And so thinking about the culture that may be surrounded that um, and help seeking behavior. And so I think that we don't usually and don't often create cultures for male athletes to feel comfortable to speak up about um, how they're doing. And then sometimes that can lead to some of this deviant behavior that we're talking about. And so I think it's a full circle. What comes first, sport culture and deviant behavior or deviant behavior drives sport culture? Well, but but I think there's also cause for optimism because there is much more. I'm not saying there's no stigma. That's about as naive as there's no ism, right? There's no racism, sexism, right? But, but, but the, there is a change in the tide that at least with regards to mental illness, that people are talking about it more um, people certainly railed against Skip Bayless, which is he makes himself a, a, an easy target to begin with. And I, I think that the other thing that, that we should be mindful of is that, um, and it's an ongoing issue that I struggle with when I'm working with athletes. It's like, all right, you're not a football player. You're, you're a person that plays football. And the reason why that's an important differentiation is, first off, the higher someone identifies as an athlete, the more I'm worried about their ability to deal with other aspects of their life, especially if they have a career-ending injury. But the other thing is, is that it implies that football culture or sport culture is the only culture that impacts them. You know, I remember when everybody lost their minds with Michael Vick in the dogfighting, right? Now, please, let's not get Pete's here, not Pete up. Let's not get Pete on the phone. I'm not saying that dogfighting is good. I'm not. What I'm saying is, is that I, I hope you're not saying that dogs. No, no, but we need to be mindful. If you grew up in a place that that's more normalized, then it's a cultural difference. And, and, and also, let me offer that Michael Vick went to federal prison, served his time, which is solely, certainly a whole lot more than a lot of other athletes that committed crimes did. So there is this idea that you served your time, you deserve an opportunity to get your life back together. But Michael Vick to this day is still like one of these poster children for deviance, and. Um, uh, look, if you were running a uh, a dogfighting ring in upper um, upper class snooty uh, Connecticut, uh, it would be a very different set of circumstances. And so, similarly, 
Um, athletics is one way to get out of the hood. And when you have lower SES populations, there are subcultures in there. Sometimes they glamorize a uh, criminal lifestyle because there aren't, they don't see as many ways out, even though education, entertainment, hard work, blue collar, there's lots of different ways out. But the point is, is that we should be mindful that the cool thing about sports is you have people from all different cultures coming together. But it doesn't mean because they come from different cultures and they come together, they lose their culture. So when you guys were talking before, it reminded me of a, a tailback that I used to work with probably shit, 20 years ago at this point. And he was, he was one of these all-world talents, black kid from Far Rockaway. And he gets um, a football scholarship to some unnamed Big Ten school that he quickly informed me that he felt like uh, you know, a peppercorn in a salt milk, right? But everybody treated him like gold. He was like, Doc, parents are throwing their white daughters at me. I don't understand it, right? And, and, and we, he had a lot of culture adjustment. But the thing that really, really tore him apart was as hard as that was to adjust to, it was the next year when he tore his ACL and he got thrown on the heap and all the racial epithets came, came and all of the what he realized was a charade or almost like, I'll forgive you for who you are so long as you can perform for me mm-hmm. the way I want you to. And then if that's gone, then it's gone. So it's so it's impossible to remove someone's individual culture, um, whether that's religious, re- uh, racial uh, traditions, etc. cetera. Um, and, and while sports can level the playing field, um, it's still very complicated and impacts behavior. Um, you know, we didn't talk about, you know, the whole gang mentality and what happens with that when you become a pro athlete, do you drop your flag or are people still calling for affiliations? It's, it's complicated stuff and not the type of thing that you could really talk about in a public forum. It, it, it's, it's probably the single greatest dilemma that I have because I work in deviant behavior all the time. So when people are coming to me, it's for domestic violence and sexual assault issues and all the rest of that stuff, anger management. They're not going to go, by the way, Dr. Abrams is the guy to talk to. He's the guy I went to when I raped someone, right? So it almost feels like there's this vacuum of nowhere for people to go in their struggle with deviant behavior. And the truth is, that's not true. There's a lot that we could be doing. And there's a lot of people out there. uh, You know, uh, Megan and I have a a special interest group meeting tomorrow on anger and violence from inside the ask group. So we're constantly trying to build the group of professionals that are thinking about this. And and it, it, you know, it's the old phrase. It takes a village. You need people with different skills, different angles, different approaches um, to to deal with this very complex problem. I'm glad that you brought up uh, Michael Vick because I was going to bring him up as well, but I'm glad he did first. So then people can get mad at you and and not me because I'm just agreeing with you. But <laughs> I also um, I also said how much I love Serena Williams, so it's okay. That <laughs> one's out. <laughs> Go ahead. True. Uh, so Michael Vick actually came and did a, uh, he had a talk with our student athletes here. And a lot of the things that we're talking about, he talked about. And he said, when he started making money, he realized what's better than making money is making a lot of money. And so thinking about his culture and where he came from, how do you make money fast through doing some gambling? Um, and he, your point, I'm the point about him going to prison and, and coming back. I think if we're not willing to read, to help athletes 
or anyone uh, rehab their image, then what are we doing? I mean, our whole field is about self-awareness and self-regulation. And so if we just write people off, now I'm not excusing racist behavior. I'm not excusing sexual assault. I'm not excusing any of the behavior. But I think that if we don't think about the option for people to change, then we're probably in the wrong field. Bravo. I mean, look, I, I've been banging the drum about this for a long time. I've just been banging the drum and making so long that you finally listen to some of the things that you said. <laughs> I mean, look, the, the truth is, is that in the forensic psychology world, everything we do is based off a of risk-need responsivity model, which means every criminal behavior has risk factors that contributed to it, and those risk factors have treatment needs. So when you have somebody that's committed domestic violence or sexual assault, people want to say, oh, throw the book at them, send them to jail forever, right? Well, first off, in the sports world, it's not that easy because if you do that, they're going to go across town and then beat your ass on the football field as your rival. And the other thing is, is if you really care about preventing victims, then you need to assess them and get them treatment. And treatment can work for most every violent athlete that exists. So um, we, we tend to, it's this old pound of flesh mentality that when people transgress, just kill them and everything will be fine. Don't worry, there'll be someone else that does it. We really have to be able to identify, uh, it's, the, it's the far extreme of people that cannot be rehabilitated, cannot be helped. And, and, and when you, if you get that conclusion, you're talking about psychopaths that are very, 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 very rare. So we should be identifying when people are struggling, trying to understand what went into their behavior, monumental difference between an explanation and an excuse. We're not excusing them. I'm, I'm not saying don't punish them. But in addition to the punishment, treat them so that they come out the other side with a better chance of improving. Not to mention, violence we know as a behavior just by itself with no other intervention, people tend to age out of violence. As they get older, they tend to be less violent. Why? Well, better emotional regulation, better moral development. Their brain actually finishes myelinating, right? So, so just time alone often improves those things. But if we really want to take care of people and athletes and victims, then we can't just tar and feather the people for the bad behavior. We have to be willing to do something about it. Yeah, we have, we have to believe that people have the capacity for change. Otherwise, what's the point in anything, right? Absolutely. The the, the Michael Vick example is a really good one because, you know, you talked about the, the dogfight thing and the kind of culture where that comes from. And it, it speaks to what we, where we started out with this, really, that if we think about deviant behavior as something that's different to social norms, we can't have this singular idea of the acceptable social norms, right? We have to take into account lots of different social norms that might exist in different circumstances. Um the, the other thing that you mentioned now that I thought was really interesting was about uh, athletes kind of being chewed up and spat out. There'll be somebody else who comes along, you know, and our expectations of what athletes should be, they have to give everything for us. They have to give everything for our entertainment. And then when they don't do that, when they don't perform how we want, we just spit them out. That's the conditions for athletes to do whatever it takes to stay at the top, right? To stay relevant. Like those are the conditions where we might start to see some of this behavior that violates the spirit of the rules of the game, if you want to use that phrase. I think the idea of um, 
how we treat athletes is going to be mimicked and how they behave makes a lot of sense because uh, there's a, a seminal study, I would call it seminal, I don't know who else would, by Dan Wan, who really looked at fan behavior um, and looking at fan violence. And uh, the study basically asked undergrads how far they'd be willing to go to ensure that their team won um, and not even like a championship game, but just winning games. And it was eye-opening. I mean, obviously saying that you would do it and do it or not going to be the same thing, but even to identify that, yeah, I think I'd be willing to hurt someone or break someone's leg or even murder someone to ensure that my team would win. Um, And if we think about the origin of sport, sport began as a very violent activity. Um, And so everything from the top of the organization to fans, to the athletes, to, to really everybody involved, we're producing a culture where this behavior is not only sometimes acceptable, but it's encouraged. Well, but historically, just extend that even further, because the reason why the NCAA was developed was because football was killing people. It was like Princeton versus Yale in 1912. I mean, the NCAA was to regulate the sport because it was too violent. Um, it doesn't look like the USOC and, and NCAA or any of these governing bodies have kept track of the fact that regulation was, was not just for um, financial means. Um, there is this next man up or next woman up mentality. And um, it's, it, there are times that you see athletes really struggling with this desperation of relevance. Um, you don't hear it as often as you'd like, but you sometimes hear it with rookie quarterbacks. And I hear it in baseball so much, but I don't hear It's not a common theme. I wish it was everybody said it. People have to teach people how to become pros, right? You have to learn how to be a pro. What does that mean? That means taking care of your body. You only have one of them right? Um, uh, learning how to watch film, learning how to study and be a good teammate, learning how to, some of this is our sports psych work, right? learning how to perform at a high level, even when you don't have your best day. Um, and, and so there is, uh, it, I hear people in sports psychology sometimes nipping at each other's heels. And the competition is, is kind of funny to me because there's so much work to do, man. There is so much work to do. If you're worried that you have to sell your soul to the devil in order to get work, either you're not very good or you're not paying attention to what's going on in the sports world. Um, there's a lot for us to do, a lot that we can contribute. And I think that where, where sports psychologists should be slightly threatened is the fact that a good coach, whether they know the lingo or not, is a good sports psychologist. They know how to get the most out of their athletes. They're sensitive to their needs on multiple levels. They understand motivation and cohesion issues. Um, uh, They try to maximize good practice strategies and and the mental side of the game as well as the the physical side of the game. So, you know, (laughs) there's just so much work to do. There there really is. And I think that um, the more we talk about these things, and because I've been doing anger management in sports so often, I can't tell you. You know what the most common response I get is when I'm talking to people about how to better manage their emotions in in sport? They go, that's it? Yeah, that's it. It's not rocket science, man. It's increasing your awareness, becoming more aware earlier, having a set of skills that you can use to get your uh, mood adjusted to a place that's going to help you, and considering the consequences of what you do. A lot of what we do is um, – 
I'm not saying that it's 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 simple stuff. It's often easy to say and hard to do. But as we have these conversations and as athletes are talking more about mental health issues and, and we're opening the frame, there's there's a, a lot that we could be doing to um, change culture, change approach, um, and, and really maximize the wonderful things that we get out of sports um, instead of, uh, you know, I mean, look, if, if I'm playing football, I remember Chris Carr said this to me, he was at Ohio State at the time, he goes, exactly what that guy just did on the 50-yard line, if he did it in the parking lot, it would be a felony, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, so there's, even inside the sport, people are allowed to engage in behavior that would be criminal if it was not inside their sport. And that's why when, when <clears throat> people originally tried to differentiate violence from sports violence, it had to include things that were outside the rules of the sport. And in the extreme, I would argue they should even be prosecuted. That's happened a couple of times, you know, ice hockey usually. I'm here with Dr. Mitch Abrams and Dr. Megan Bird, and we're talking about whether or not we should expect more from our sporting heroes. Uh, it's been a, a fascinating conversation so far. If you've enjoyed what you have heard, uh, leave a comment on the website, 80percentmental.com, or perhaps send us a tweet at EPM Podcast. We're on Instagram as well, at 80percentmental, all words. Um, we've just been talking about... Uh, violence in sport and the separation of violence in sport historically and it, it leads me on to this idea that again the environment might play a role here sport is this supercharged hyped up uh, atmosphere of over arousal athletes operating at a really high intensity the fans feed into that as well the media feeds into that by hyping up rivalries um, we're expecting aggression we're expecting uh heat of competition we're telling people be violent just don't be too violent is, is are we asking too much it's amazing there isn't more violence I mean, <laughs> right. right i mean it's like it's a stimulus differentiation problem uh okay let me let me get this straight um i'm standing on this piece of grass i can throw this guy out of the way and i can try to put my head through that guy's body Got it. All right. Now I'm at home with my wife and we're in an argument and I can't do that. Um, it, it's it, not to, I don't, it's you know tongue firmly planted in cheek. It's amazing. Athletes aren't more violent. It speaks to the fact that most athletes have great anger management skills. And in fact, it's a required reading. I mean, think pe people may not appreciate the fact that if you're not very good at managing your emotions, you have to be really, really, really talented for that to not be a rate limiting step and stop you from getting from where you could go. So um, I, I, I'm still somewhat surprised that there isn't more violence because uh, uh, I'm allowed to do it here. I'm not. Uh, give you an example. In the old days, they used to say, oh, if you're angry, just punch a punching bag or scream into a pillow. Well, you do feel better after that. So what's going to happen next time when you, you reinforce punching, you don't have the punching bag. Next time you have your girlfriend, now you punch your girlfriend. So um, it, it, it's everywhere. And, and has our society really become less violent? I, I haven't noticed that. <laughs> I Yeah, I agree. I think that 
um, this idea of athletes having better emotion control than we give them credit for is probably true. Uh, think about what athlete hasn't been frustrated. And we know that a common response to frustration is anger and a common response to anger is aggression. And so if you're playing a sport and you're not getting frustrated, you probably don't care about it very much. Um, mm. And so the fact that athletes yeah, live with attention. frustration, yeah, exactly. <laughs> athletes live in a world of heightened frustration on top of being in a highly excitable, activated state. Um, and then also their blood is pumping. So just a lot of stuff is happening um, biologically and psychologically. And for the most part, athletes do a pretty good job on and off the field. Um as Mitch mentioned earlier, we have a lot of athletes who are really involved in philanthropy, um, who give back to those communities. Um, and, and what do they get for it? They get praise until they mess up and or have a bad game and then it's gone. Um, so I, I'm even thinking about after the Euro Cup, um, the athletes from the England soccer team, just the hate and racist comments that they received after that happened, where if they would have made that, that probably wouldn't have happened. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think that's the paradox of the good part of social media is all the people who were like, that's really messed up. And then mm -hmm. um, the people who were not doing that. Yeah. And, and of course, there's a, a huge, you know, racial element to that in that, again, black people are here for our entertainment until they aren't entertaining yeah. us, at which point they become less than Shut human. Shut up again, and so. dribble. Shut up and dribble. Exactly. Exactly that. Mitch, go on. You, you're going to jump in there. Well, it's, it's kind of just a free tip. Uh, there are a lot of people out there that are talking about anger management in sport, right? And when, when people are talking about this is the piece that always breaks down that, that, that people have to prepare for. If we're going to help identify when you're getting angry so that you can modulate your emotions, the way most people teach people to recognize that is to pay attention to changes in their body, right? What happens uh, when you get angry? Sympathetic nervous system response. Heart rate goes up. Breathing becomes faster and shallower, muscle tension, sweating. Well, guess what? That happens normally during competition. So if you're going to ask someone to recognize when they're getting angry because their heart rate is up, their breathing is fast, their muscles are tight, and they're, they're sweating, they're going to either go, I can't figure it out, or I must always be angry. <laughs> and so, so the trick is you can't use that as the cue to let you know that you're angry in competition because otherwise you'll never figure it out. That works when you're teaching them in the office. That works when they're building their skills. But when you're in competition, not to give away the farm, the difference is you have to teach people to pay attention to sh the shift in their cognitive set. When I'm more interested in killing you, Pete, instead of if I want to execute you, instead of execute my game plan, that's when I know I'm lost. And when someone is in that situation, they got to tap out and go cool down because they're not going to help their team. And that's why you'll hear people talk about anger management in sport and it never goes. You go, I don't understand. Why do they keep doing it? Because people aren't teaching them how to recognize when they're angry in competition. And as is most often the case, no one realizes how pissed they are until they're already past the line. And now you're looking for apologies. I, I don't like apologizing. So I try to avoid doing things that I have to apologize for. <laughs> Sometimes successfully, sometimes not. <laughs> um, really interesting stuff there, Mitch. Uh, you know, especially kind of for our younger psychs listening, that the difference between uh, recognizing anger in different different settings. Um, the, the, the other environmental thing that I want to talk about, I gave a lecture the other week on ethics 
in uh, in sport. And one of the things that we talked about was uh, gambling and, and match fixing as one of these sort of unethical behaviors that athletes and coaches and people in sport can quite often get drawn into. And one of the things that, that, that we talked about was the idea that many of the sports leagues are sponsored by betting companies. Yeah. <laughs> right? The, I take the Premier League. I can't remember exactly where I read this, but I think the Premier League and the uh, English Football League clubs would lose £110 million in sponsorship if we banned betting companies from advertising on shirts. Um, shirt sponsorships worth like £70 million a year just in the Premier League. Uh, almost half of the teams have got uh, betting companies as, as shirt sponsors. It's It's everywhere. You know, it's, it's, it's everywhere yet, you know, we, we vilify athletes who get caught up in, in gambling. We see a lot of athletes with gambling issues. Uh, but I guess, you know, the question is, is, and I, I suspect I know the answer, but should sport really play host to some of the behaviors that it actually finds unacceptable within its own ranks? Should sport embrace these, you know, sponsorships from gambling companies and and tobacco and alcohol as well right um when we know we have so, so many athletes with alcohol issues and uh, gambling issues especially post-career um, how deviant can we get in our responses you go for it <laughs> uh it's kind of like legalizing gambling i mean legal, <laughs> it's kind of like legalizing drugs uh, you know you, people when people start talking about legalizing gambling in the states and they were, oh, federal law, federal law. Let's stop with the moral nonsense. People don't give a crap about that. You want to follow the answer, follow the dollar or the pound, whatever, right? It's <laughs> always been that way. And, and that's what drives me nuts because the only difference between legalized gambling and the bookie on the corner is only two things. Taxes to the government and they give you credit. I mean, that, that you, have to, you have to pay in advance. Bookies will give you credit for good reason, right? So in some ways, um, as as I've been, uh, as Alison Proteus once joked at me, it's just so precious how, how people try to stand on ceremony about certain things. I mean, come on. I, I don't mean to be dismissive about it, but some of it I roll my eyes at because these decisions are not based off morality. And we could have this conversation because we're intelligent people with a reasonably sound ethical compass. But the truth of the matter is these decisions are based off of money, not right or wrong. If we talk about it from an ethical point of view, it's, it's, it's bananas. It's bananas. How do you turn around? I mean, we know uh, uh, alcohol is a contributor to domestic violence. People have talked about Super Bowl Sunday being the, the highest mm -hmm. incidence of domestic yeah. violence, right? You want to stop, you want to stop, you want to get the NFL to take it seriously? Anheuser-Busch, take your sponsorship away. It'll change like that. All of a yeah. sudden, and, and I've written in different places about things that leagues can do to change behaviors if they really want to. I mean, they, they were talking about, uh, you know, you, you, lose draft picks and tons of money because the football's not inflated enough, but someone beats up their girlfriend and they're playing the next week. Um, people have not taken things seriously. So um, respectfully, um, I, I don't think we could have a meaningful conversation that would be anything other than academic if we don't first acknowledge that these decisions are not about what makes good psychological sense. It's simply about maximizing profit. Yeah.
I mean, uh, uh, of course they are. The, the, the issue comes when you have, um, I'll give you an example, there's a snooker player in the UK called Stephen Lee, I believe. And um, he was banned for 12 years for match fixing. Now, again, I'm not saying that I'm not condoning match fixing. Not that there's anything wrong with that, right? <laughs> but, but I'm just saying that punishing an individual athlete, banning him for 12 years in Pete a sport Rose is, where... Pete Rose know, is permanently not going to the Hall of Fame because he gambled on his team. And I know that that's dear to Megan's heart because of our Ohio roots. Yeah, as a Cincinnati Reds fan, I mean, the Reds have were caught up in two probably the most famous betting scandals in Major League Baseball, the 1919 World Series. And then also Pete Rose. Turns out Pete Rose had some deviances that uh, went beyond gambling, but that's neither here nor there. Um, and he swears that he never bet against his team. And he is banned for life. He just recently was even able to come back into the stadium. And so if you think Pete Rose was the only guy betting on baseball, I mean, you're insane. That's probably not like, the best psychological term to use, but <laughs> I mean, it would be it would be irritating if it wasn't so. It's ridiculous, and even with alcohol, so college colleges can make deals with alcohol companies. Individual athletes cannot. So, with the name, image, and likeness laws now for the NCAA, there are limits to what athletes can endorse, and alcohol is one of them. Is that because the NCAA doesn't want them associated with alcohol, or is it because NCAA makes a shit ton of money off of alcohol endorsements? Your guess is as good as mine. Well, I, well, I mean, it, we think we know the answer, don't we? But, well, but, <laughs> but, but Pete, what actually interesting to note, I think Megan brought up a, a fascinating point. Stephen Lee, was he gambling on his team to win? Um, and I would, and I would bet nobody gives a shit. But right. it's an, but it's an interesting dynamic, right? If you know Michael Jordan and Kobe were notorious for tormenting the people they were playing against, you know I'll, I'll, I'll bet you twenty grand I hit this next free throw. It was just stuff that happened all the time, mm -hmm. and nobody cared because a it wasn't formal, and b they were rooting for themselves. Mm -hmm. And so there's this. Um, we just we we tend to not care about the details. We tend to use this broad stroke: gambling bad instead of thinking about the process and the idea, mm -hmm. if somebody is a, a talented player, should there be sanctions for being involved with gambling? Um, yes, obviously you want a level playing field, the same way as if a ref is on the take, it's a problem. The mob has been um, successful at infiltrating things and it's not hard to move a line, a couple of points here or there. It's easier for the refs actually than the players. Um, but uh, it, it just, it seems to me that we should be looking at these things uh, as separate entities, as things that are of moral concern, um, but you can't use a one-size-fits-all uh, uh, approach. And I think that that's where it kind of crumbles on itself. Yeah. Um, I kind of speaking of some of these, some of these things that, that just become part of the, of the sport, James Frey talked about this idea of organizational deviance. Mm. And he was talking about U.S. college sports, but I think we can – safely extrapolate here um the, the idea of rule bending rule breaking unethical behavior when that becomes institutionalized into kind of normal activity and the prime example that you know that we can talk about here is in uh, cycling and doping where it just becomes so normal within the context of that particular sport that it's not even considered deviant behavior anymore 
by the it, people. It's like, of course, of course you are. Of course you are. Everyone right. is. And, and interesting, that was one of the things with steroids in baseball, right? It, it's like uh, you're you do realize everyone. I remember when Ron. I'm showing my age. I remember when Ron Gant was playing for the Atlanta Braves, and he he, he was jacked. It was the first time people started talking, at least that I remember, people were talking about the physical transformation of athletes. And if everybody was using steroids, would people still have a problem with it? Would they go, oh, this is just a, a it's no different than your uniform. It's an expectation. Mm-hmm. So uh, things get th- thrown on its side. I mean, the, the gross tolerance of deviant behavior across cultures is, is, I mean, USA Gymnastics just looking the other way. Um, it's, I absolutely believe, you know, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Who's, you know, who's stopping the fox from getting in the hen house? And, and it's always the same old story. Either you knew or you should have known. And people's willingness to look the other way is frankly disgusting. Megan, do you, do you have any kind of examples of these types of, you know, where you see the normalization of, of behavior, um, that might otherwise be considered unacceptable. Uh, have you any examples of that from the context you've worked in or, or that you've come across? Um, I think historically, even if we think about things, this idea of things that were once labeled deviant, now they're accepted. Sexual orientation at one point was labeled as a deviance, sexual deviance. And so now we've grown up in in most aspects um, about that not being considered deviant anymore, depending on what circles you uh, you run in. Um, and but I'm even thinking about in in soccer, thinking about or football, thinking about flopping. So flopping is something that's considered part of the game. Everybody does it, of course, not the people I work with because they would never. Um, but <laughs> it happens, and so is that is flopping deviant. I guess it depends who you ask and what's the context, or is it strategy? And so I think a lot of these deviant behaviors, that's how they become to be thought about. Well, there's a difference between uh, gamesmanship and um, organizational collapse. You know, the, the, it's one thing to flop. Um, it's another thing for a coach to say, injure that guy. Sure. Take that person out. And mm-hmm. and I think that that's where you draw the line when it's not just about, and don't get me wrong, I'm not sure that it's a clear line in the sand. <laughs> it's not so easy. We just go, this behavior, good, that behavior, bad. Yeah. But I think that when you have um, coaches that are saying, listen, by any means necessary, including things illegal, let alone immoral, that's what we have to worry. And, and Megan's point is well taken that the, these cultural norms of what's acceptable behavior has shifted and you know now i'm gonna feel like an old guy but sometimes i'm like man i don't like all of these changes sometimes a sport being a little bit more pure a little less um a little bit more dignified um has its place now that might sound old-fashioned and there's a lot of things that are old-fashioned that are bad that, that that weren't useful um but i think that sometimes we've just become so accepting of so many things it's hard to know if we're even allowed to draw a line and, 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 and by the way, I'm not saying being accepting and, and open-minded is a bad thing. I'm just saying any approach that doesn't have any limits or moderations can be dangerous.
So given given everything that we've we've just been talking about there, kind of the, the, the million dollar question is that, you know, do we expect too much from our athletes? Given these environmental factors that might play a role, given the the atmosphere that we are creating around sport with sponsorship and uh, and, and, and kind of toxic masculinity and you know all of these things, do we expect too much from our athletes? Some of them set themselves up to be role models. Uh, some of them deliberately don't. Um, you mentioned Charles Barkley earlier on in the podcast. Um, maybe we shouldn't expect so much from our athletes just because they're good at sport. Well, I think we definitely expect too much from them if we're not going to put the things around them that are necessary in order to make that likely to be achieved. If we're not going to improve coaching, if we're not going to hold them accountable from the time they're young, if we're not going to look for sportsmanship as something that they should strive for, then yes, then we have unrealistic expectations. But if we put all of those things around them, and we have not, we have not done a good job of that, certainly not. Uh, across the board. I think there's pockets of greatness of it. Um, uh, but if you put all those things around them, then it's reasonable to have higher expectations for them. Until then, I think it's a mistake. I'm going to give a non-answer um, because I don't think it matters whether or not we think that we should or shouldn't. The reality is, is that we're going to. And so to Mitch's point, I think it makes it even more important that we're providing athletes with resources to handle all of these things that we've been talking about, coming into money, coming into fame, coming into millions of Twitter and Instagram followers and what's appropriate and not appropriate. And also allowing athletes to make that decision for themselves. If they want to stay hanging out with their friends who probably are keeping them in some deviant circles, at the end of the day, I think if they've been given the resources not to and they're choosing to, we do our jobs and they do their jobs. And that's really all that we can ask for. I, I don't necessarily agree with that last point because it implies that they know what's best for them. You know, I, I think that, right. I mean, it, they have to pick agents, they pick financial advisors and they've made bad decisions with those at, the, at times. Um, I think that we need to do a better job and governing bodies and agents and all the rest of the stuff we need to do a better job of educating athletes about these things and then encourage them to make a choice. If they're educated about these things and they're like, you know, screw that, I'm going to do what I want. Okay, fine. But I don't know that athletes appreciate the risks. Some of it is developmental, right? The thing that makes them so great is they don't experience fear the same way as other people. So they'll take chances that the average, well, that also can be a pitfall. So, um, and developmentally normal pitfall nonetheless. So I would agree with you, Megan, so long as we don't, we don't just go, by the way, check yes or no here. We say, listen, you know, we know these are risk factors. We know athletes are poor three years after their pro career starts, right? This percentage of people uh, get arrested, right? If we can provide them with information and say, we would recommend you do a better job of surrounding yourself with pro-social people to make smart decisions that are good for business and good for your health, mental health, as well as physical and financial health. And then if they say, bug, bug off, I'm going to do what I want. So be it. But I think that that piece, we, we can do a better job on that also. And then I'd be perfectly fine with everything made. It yeah, is I agree. And I think, I think part of it as well is 
if the response is after they've been given all this information and all the support of I'm going to do what I want to do anyway, if we put our clinical hats on, we know that hyper-independence is a trauma response. And so even thinking about, we didn't really talk about athlete traumatic histories, if those exist, and then traumatic histories that they experience in sport itself. Um, so really thinking about big picture, the athlete as an entire person with an entire life before they came into to professional or college sports. It's also a symptom of testosterone poisoning. So, I mean, there's many roads to Rome. It would be mistaken to think that every athlete that thinks that way is because they have a trauma history, with trauma being a, a non-specific term. But I think that there's there's this developmental issue, and it's, it's certainly flooded. I mean, you take a look at the um, uh, average, I remember it was, um, it was a study in the early 80s asking um, 18 to 25-year-old African-American men where they thought they'd be five years from now. And something, some ungodly high number was either dead or in jail. And so, it, 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 you know, obviously, the generalizability of that brings questions, but just the theme of a lack of forward thinking is developmentally normal under normal circumstances. Um, it, it's, it's a lot to ask sometimes. You know, youth is wasted on the young and you have to, I can't get a job without experience, but if I don't have experience, I can't get a job. So sometimes we're asking athletes to have wisdom that's unreasonable for where they are developmentally. And we can help with that. So what can we do then? You know, uh, sports psychologists, coaches, even at an organizational level, parents maybe, you know, what, what can we do? What's our role here to help athletes coaches through some of these maybe moral ethical dilemmas um some of the behaviors that they might find themselves engaged in what, what what's our role and what can we do i know you mentioned a couple of things already but you know let's let's give our listeners what they want i think the key is the parents i think parents tolerate too much bullshit they, they, they buy this nonsense of coaches saying, I'm going to take your son or daughter to the Olympics, and then they let the coach do whatever they want. Um, very often it's because parents are busy trying to make sure that they've got ends meet and they can drop their kids off at sport and they're doing other things. And they hear rumors of bad things happening. I think parents have to be the, the litmus test of or the, uh, the catalyst of change. The good thing about sports being as widespread as it is, there's always another show in town. And if we see coaches that are doing things the wrong way, that are uh, uh, teaching immoral things, then you pull your kids and you ostracize the coach and let them lose their ability to coach. So that, and because there are many, many more good, good coaches out there than bad coaches, we need to tar and feather the idiots who should not be corrupting the kids. Because the truth of the matter is, a talented athlete is going to wind up narcissistic if left unchecked. Why? Because if I beat you and you and you and you, I start thinking I'm better than everyone else. So how do you stop them from becoming cocky? Well, good sportsmanship, accountability, discipline, parenting. Right? So when you have parents that are demanding accountability and coaches that are demanding accountability. Now you have a talented kid that's well-rounded. They're getting the psychological support as well. So at because you cannot become a college athlete without being a youth sport athlete first, <laughs> right? And unfortunately, most, most of the youth sport coaches are parents who sign up and they have no business doing so. Mm. Parents are in, I think, the best. And you can't ask kids that age to determine who's a good coach or a bad coach. I think 
we ask a lot of college and pro athletes when their their path has already been set. It's a whole lot harder to change their trajectory. I think youth sport is where the answers are, and parents have to be more involved with setting the expectations of I will not have my kid coached by that man or that woman because of the way they're doing things. And that could improve the overall sport, uh, sport experience. And maybe stop seeing, you know, 90% of the kids dropping out by the time they're 13. So, so Megan, here's a question for you then. You know, a lot of psychologists, a lot of trainee psychs, young psychologists coming through will find themselves working in these youth sports settings, right? What's their role? How can they help with some of the things that Mitch has just been talking about? Uh, so with our graduate students, we talk about the idea of being the courageous adult in the room. And sometimes that's what it takes. It's just having the courage to stand up and say, this is not okay. And if no one else is willing to be that voice, be it the parent, the coach, uh, administrators, people who are supposed to keep people safe are not going to, we need to know how to recognize the signs of what's happening. So teaching our trainees and teaching people in the field how to recognize signs of sexual abuse and sexual assault, how to recognize signs of violence, how to recognize signs and symptoms that might be associated with a lower frustration tolerance, how do we prepare people for this so we can be proactive instead of reactive. I think I've heard Mitch Abram say this probably 150 times in the years that I've known him, is until we decide to be proactive instead of reactive, we're just creating a problem that is probably not going to go away. We're here with Dr. Mitch Abrams and Dr. Megan Bird, and we've been talking about whether or not we should expect more from our athletes. Um, just before we we finish up, I have one more thing that I just want to throw at you. Um, Connor in 2009 wrote a paper um, that talked about this concept of the athlete as a widget. I don't know if you have the phrase widget in America, but it's like a thingy my bob a doodah a, a plumbus if you watch rick and morty or the first series of rick and morty when it was funny before the toxic fans ruined it anyway um but essentially you know it's a it's about how exploitation explains elite sport right so it's the idea that the athlete is just this interchangeable piece individually irrelevant has no power um but it's kind of just part of this machine of sport. And, you know, back back in our episode on sports parenting uh, at, the, at the start of this series, we talked about the fact that less than half a percent of male high school basketball players uh, will make it to the NBA. Uh, it's, it's lower in the WNBAs, 0.2%, I think it is. Uh, half a percent of high school athletes are drafted into major league baseball. And this is just drafted as well. This isn't having a career, you know, in the UK, we've got uh, less than half a percent of boys who enter a soccer academy at age nine will sign a professional contract. You've got more chance of being hit by a meteorite than actually making it as a professional athlete. I think that's, that's the, uh, the, the comparison anyway. But what we're saying is that there's this never ending supply of athletes and there's only a tiny proportion of athletes that make it. And, and I think you've both sort of alluded to this throughout this podcast as well anyway. But does this encourage unethical behavior on the part of the coach? You know, the athlete's just this cog in the machine that can be replaced at any time if they 
become injured, if they fail, if they're not good enough, or if they just become too controversial for some reason. Does that encourage a certain type of behavior in sports organizations and, and, and coaches? Any thoughts on that? Yes. Okay, good. <laughs> I, I, I think it's the reason why... Um, I, let me take that back. As you were talking, I largely disagree with that. And then I was thinking about it as you were talking, and I was like, maybe. I think it's why the the most successful have to be the most verbal. Because there is some interchangeability to it, and there is power that the coaches have that does make the... I'm not going to be the person to say this coach is an idiot when he could just replace me with someone else. Mm. Um, and there is the risk of propagation of unethical behavior, bad coaching, etc. I think it, there's something to that. Um, and, and it takes courage. And you could also argue, of course, that having the courage and the um, intestinal fortitude to stand up to that is the type of thing that leaders are made of. And those leaders will be more likely to have a successful athletic career than the person that just accepts the role as a soldier. However, there's risk that goes into that. Um, and that's why I think that athletes of greater prominence have to support the idea of examining this. Because um, otherwise, I mean, I mean, it's probably the biggest complaint I have. Are we even listening to athletes? <laughs> you know? And, and I think as this is often the, the case, you know, 5% of the population take 95% of our attention. And the bulk of the athletes never get to the next level. That's why youth sport is so important. It's about character development, not just athletic development. Um, so it's an interesting way to look at things. I think that we should be mindful of that dynamic that shuts people up and, and try to be more uh, available to hear and in, in perspective of these issues. Um, but athletes, ultimately, without the athletes, there are no coaches. So athletes also should be empowered in the process. Megan? We see this play out in scandals all the time. There's a really great documentary called Athlete A, which is about the Larry Nassar scandal at USA Gymnastics. And in the documentary, they talk about how athletes were aware that this was happening to more than just one of them. And the one who went first um, was left off the, the national team um, when they went to the Olympics. And so we see that there are athletes who stand up and speak out who are ostracized. And so I think that also creates this culture where it's acceptable and in some places encouraged because if you're a good enough athlete, then the message is then you'll do whatever it takes. And whatever it takes is whoever's telling you what you need to do. And so without adults in the room to say this is not okay, I think that's why that continues to happen. Obedience is an expectation of sports. It's, it's part of the dance. It's the, the stewardship. And it's dangerous. And there is a real risk. But keep in mind, um, I've, I've often criticized that one of the problems with when we look at these scandals is the people who tend to get organized to try to address these issues are, are often advocates that were victims themselves. Not anybody that has any experience with treating perpetrators. I've been doing that for a long time, and I can tell you that these people groom the whole system, not just their victims. 
And so if there's already this culture of obedience that's expected, and some sports expect it even more than others, you know, figure skating and, and gymnastics tend to stand out as, as very powerful that way, mm-hmm. um, then they're going to groom the system and everyone's going to go, oh, this everyone's okay with this. So WTF, <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, you know, we have to be available to hear. And, and meanwhile, USA Gymnastics, USOC, and I'll, I'll say it, I said this in a presentation not long ago, increasingly I'm getting athletes that are complaining to me saying there was a sports site there, they knew what was going on, and they didn't say anything. So it just contributed to me thinking this is okay and I should tolerate it. And identification of trauma, trauma symptoms, um, a certain percentage of people that have been traumatized will become violent themselves, even though most people that are traumatized don't. This is not a core competency in sports psychology. Anger management, treatment of violence, it's not a core competency. I'm not saying everyone has to have the same specialty, but there's just not enough understanding and appreciation of this problem. When you reached out to me to talk about this, Pete, I was like, man, I can't wait because I'll talk about this till the dogs come home. I've been telling Megan, man, I'm tired of you and I talking. Me and Michelle, (laughs) Michelle Bartlett, there's kind of a group of us that have been talking about these things for a while and a lot of sports psychologists are not interested in it. And and the irony of it is, is that anger management has to be a part of sports psychology because when it's deviant, you remove the deviant behavior so that they're available to play. And if they have an anger management problem and you can help them manage it, it's going to improve their performance. So why would we care about every other emotion being managed in order to improve performance and not care about anger? This is overdue. It's, it's part of the human condition. Let's own it and help people with it. Awesome. Thank you both. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of come to the end of the questions that I've got before we, before we finish up, is there anything else on the topic that you want to say anything else that you want to discuss anything else that you think is important? Really just a commercial for more things like this. Uh, I really can't thank you enough, Pete, for you hosting this and, and being interested in this topic. I think that this is the type, and of course, I have my own prejudices, and I, I, I can talk about this to the dogs come home, and people, out, there's plenty of people out there that are tired of hearing my voice saying it, but, <laughs> but this is important to talk about, and the more forums we have to talk about it, whether it's written word, spoken word, podcast, TED Talk, whatever, we need to talk about these things more. I hope that more people come to the table, um, and, and I'm not hard to find. Uh, and I, I mean, I've been working with Megan and Michelle Bartlett, people in, that have been interested in this subset of sports psych for a while. Um, so thank you again for the opportunity, and we welcome anybody who wants to talk about this to reach out to us and really propagate the conversation. We can't do it ourselves. Megan, anything from you? Any final messages on the on the topic? Um, I think. Uh, how do I want to say this? I think it's important to acknowledge that it's not a freedom of consequence, but it's a freedom of not being judged by your worst moment for your entire life. Um, and really thinking about if we think that people can change, how do we help them change while still believing that consequences should exist and that people can't be terrible people to other people with no sort of, um, you know, response to that. Well, I just want to thank you both uh, so much for taking the time to uh, to come and talk. 
on the podcast today. I, I hope that you've enjoyed listening to the wonderful Dr. Megan Bird and Dr. Mitch Abrams and the conversation we've had about whether or not we should expect more from our sporting heroes. Um, we've discussed a whole number of things. We talked about how social media can exaggerate some of these stories about deviant behavior, if we want to call it deviant behavior, but also how it can be a powerful tool for getting to the truth of some of these stories when the official line might serve a purpose. Uh, We talked about whether sport is really the force for good that we like to think it is. And we talked about whether we all, as coaches, sport organizations, fans, media, maybe have a role to play in creating conditions where an athlete's or a coach's moral compass might temporarily malfunction. Um, I think the thing that stood out for me was this idea that if we think about deviance as something that's different from perceived social norms, we have to really take into consideration the fact that there are several sets of social norms that are important here. Uh, you know, you both talked about those cultural differences that are maybe important for us to keep in mind here when we think about what is, in inverted commas, normal uh, and what is not. Um, I would just like to thank my guests once again for being the brilliant people uh, that you that you both are. So thank you so much, Dr. Megan Bird. Thanks so much for having us. I really enjoyed it. You're absolutely welcome. And thank you, Dr. Mitch Abrams. You're very welcome, man. You're the best. Good stuff. Uh, what, what we'll do is we'll put links to your social media in the description so people can find you if they want to. Um, if you do have any thoughts on what we've discussed today, you can get in touch with us via the Twitter. Um, the Twitter? You can get in touch with us via Twitter the Twitter, if you want to call it that, at EPM Podcast or Instagram at 80% Mental, uh, 80% Mental is all words. Or you can go to the website, 80percentmental.com. Don't forget to listen and subscribe, uh, which you can do on the website or wherever you get your podcasts from. And if you enjoyed listening today, uh, why not leave us a review? Uh, or even better, you can share the episode on your own social media. Uh, that's the best way for people to find uh, our content. But that's it. That's the end of another episode of 80% Mental for now. I hope you enjoyed it and I'll see you next time. Well, I won't see you because it's a podcast.